Hi, and welcome to FP21. It's great to have you here. Yeah, same here. Welcome. Thank you for welcoming me. I appreciate it. Cool, cool, cool. Can you please introduce yourself? Um, give a bit of background on what it is you do. Sure. Um, of course, of course. So my name is E. Most people have. Um, I um, I've been in the technology industry for the last ten years. Um, I got into technology, I would argue, by accident. <laughs> I wasn't supposed to be in the sector. I was planning to be a journalist and a lawyer, but um, I had a friend who I had met on the first day. Silicon Valley, and for something we call the cooperative education term. So he went um, to work at a Silicon Valley company for a couple months and then came back to campus. And um, he told me about Silicon Valley, and I thought that was amazing. And then I, um, I started to be, we started to be much better friends, and we started a company together. Um, that company didn't do very well, but we sold it by some miracle. And then I moved back to Nigeria after that company. That company was called Booknet. And then I moved back to Nigeria to found a company called Fora. Um, Fora also modeled through, um, but it evolved into Andela, which is a platform that we built to help young Nigerians to be able to get jobs um, with large technology companies outside the shores of Nigeria. And um, that business, that business ended up. Um, um, growing um, to become, you know, 2,500 people across huh. um, across um, six African countries. Um, and then I left in to start another called Flutterwave. Flutterwave helps merchants receive method of payment from the consumer across countries. Um, started that business for people in a small office space in Lekki in Nigeria. Ended up growing that business to over 200 people um, across 16 countries uh, where we accept payments for everybody from Uber to TransferWise and multiple other platforms. So it's been a, an amazing journey in the, tech, in the tech world for me, just um, building important things. Um, now what I do, I invest in other tech companies. So um, well, we are a platform called Future Africa. Um, the full name is the Fund for Africa's Future, and we invest in innovators who are building um, global business opportunities out of Africa's biggest challenges. Um, we empower them with capital, with coaching, and with community um, in the hopes that um, by doing what they do and building businesses out of it, we can together create a continent where prosperity and purpose is within everyone's reach. So that's what I do every day. We invest in 20 companies a year and we help syndicate financing into several others. We advise on mergers and acquisition. Um, we also work through um, secondaries with larger families who want to buy into the technology industry and provide advice on those transactions. That's incredible. So um, what kind of social solutions do these companies um, solve? Yeah, so I mean, with the ones I founded, and I can talk about the other ones, the ones I founded with Andela, the problem we were trying to solve was unemployment. Mm. Um, lots of people, young people particularly, didn't have the skills they needed to build 
um, um, to get employed by large global companies that were facing a skill shortage. Um, so what we did was bridge that gap through training and placement. Um, in the case of Flutterwave, you know, the big problem we're solving was financial inclusion for merchants. Um, a big barrier to a lot of merchants adopting electronic payments was the fact that there were all these different payment methods, all of which were siloed and required investments to integrate into one's business. Um, and unfortunately, you know, um, they didn't have the resources to do that one by one or the bandwidth or the, or the money. So what we did was combine all those different payment methods into one thing and help the business implement it once and for all. And that, that really solved a big problem for a lot of businesses, especially since they could do it online um, without coming to talk to anybody, uh, without a lot of hassle. And what was interesting was we noticed that because businesses had the surety that their money could always get to them, they started to lean more towards electronic payments as it was a better way to run their businesses as opposed to cash. Um, what we realized was that cash was one way that merchants basically kept their money together. So they knew how much they had sold and all that. It wasn't really like they really liked cash. And so once we solved that problem for them, they were always happy to to move. Um, other businesses that we've worked on, 54Gene, which is central to the COVID response in Nigeria. It's a network of molecular, molecular labs um, that we set out to build back in 2018 um, to provide in our, when we were building it, we wanted to collect um, genomic samples from Africans so we could build more biodiverse drugs. Um, but now it's morphed into um, a platform for supporting testing of COVID-19 patients. Um, we invested in a company called MDAS, which does walk-in diagnostics, um, basically in tier two cities. So in Nigeria, we have the major mega cities, you know, above 1 million, but there's so many other people in multiple different metropolitan areas without, without um, a lot of testing or diagnostic solutions. Also, even in the mega cities, um, you know, sometimes you want to test and it's so choked up uh, to go into a test lab because there's so much demand and so little supply. So we can send someone to your home to pick up or to administer a test to you and transport that test. Um, we invested in a company called STEM Cafe, which is a network of um, um, centers, after school centers that teach kids how to leverage science and technology to invent things. Um, and you know, doing very well, beautiful financial performance, and just recently transitioned to an online platform that supports parents who are trying to teach their kids um, different types of science or tech or robotics and stuff like that. Um, yeah, these are just a couple. Just uh, a couple. <laughs> um, you know, we funded since uh, we started, and uh, you know, just keep growing, growing, growing. Excellent, excellent. And you know, here at African Family Firms, we're passionate about family businesses moving from generation to generation and being successful in that way on the continent. And why your perspective is interesting is because when you think of a traditional family business from, say, our parents' generation, they typically mm -hmm. would be a brick and mortar business, right? But yeah. you represent the new gen, right? The new generation of founders, the tech yeah. generation, right? 
So what has been the impact of this COVID on your tech portfolio companies? I mean, if you had asked me that question, um, say, before I, I, you know, I'll say before, a few weeks before this happened and said, this would happen, I'd be like, oh, it's going to be a boon for tech, you know, let's go. Um, but the reality is it's been mixed, if I'm being honest. Um, some of our businesses I expected to do very well haven't done as well as I thought. Um, some of our businesses that have done very well, um, I did not expect to. And I was just telling you a story of how one of our businesses that, you know, um, I thought was definitely going to die because they didn't have um, those after-school centers open anymore, ended up, ended up transitioning to something new. And some of our businesses that I thought would perform absolutely well didn't, haven't, haven't really would have picked up the pace. And what I really think is, um, I haven't gone through our portfolio, um, is that, you know, um, kind of three principles really undergird the businesses that are doing well and businesses that are not doing well. And they're not numbers things or industry things or something McKinsey will tell you. But there are, first of all, the character of the leader of the business. Um, some take action and is, is very decisive in their decision making and uh, understand what's at stake and is willing to make the right kind of sacrifices um, and can see you know, um, the businesses do very well, right? Despite the situation, because they, they make the right moves. Um, I remember um, just an external example of that. You know, we had chased down a family business spa for a long time in Lagos. And, you know, they weren't, they weren't interested. They were obviously looking at their numbers and it was mostly cash payments and people come to the, to the supermarkets. So there was no need for all of that. But now in the wake of COVID, they partnered up with Flutterwave, one of our portfolio companies, to move to e-commerce and in a matter of days. So that just gives you a sense of, you know, like how decisive leaders tend to move. The second thing I've noticed is that um, the, the leaders that are waiting um, for this to pass are the leaders who are doing the worst. So there are some of our businesses where you know, they're well positioned, but they need to do something better to better position specifically for this crisis. And some of them um, are not moving quickly. They're waiting for the crisis pass before they do something necessary. Obviously, we're pushing them, but they're not, they're not moving as quickly. Those businesses are not doing very well. Um, so don't wait. And then the third thing is the businesses that are doing well are very focused on the needs of people on the needs of their, uh, of their customers. Um, so, you know, like, you know, they're, they're very focused on what does my customer need right now? What does my customer need right now in order to get through this season or this time or this period? And that is what's driving their action every day. That focus, despite the situation of their firm, on other people is really helping them create a lot of value. And that's, um, that's something that, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of business leaders need to take, take a hint and do, you know, work with your team and figure out what can you guys do together to help people around you to be helpful in this crisis, to support other families, you know? So, I mean, those are like kind of more or less my own lessons from, from this whole thing.
Um, in your view, what are the risks entrepreneurs such as yourself face? So there's a lot of risk with the business we do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, be, I'll be very frank. Um, because the, the business that we do is, is an interesting one in, some, in many respects. Um, one is that uh, if you're doing this business well, at least in my case, you're typically working with the business from a very early stage. Um, and so the, the typical risk is the acceptance of the market. And the way we mitigate that kind of risk is that we, we work in small numbers and then in large numbers. I'm so sorry. Can you give me one minute? I just need to tell someone. Guys, we're all good now. <laughs> sorry. Um, so what I was saying was in terms of risk, um, we're starting very early stage, which is very risky. Um, but what we do is we start with small numbers and make small bets. So on average, we've never funded a company on average in our first round more than $50,000. Typically, we'll write a 10K check or 25K check. Um, and that's, that's one way we manage to risk, right? Because if you're losing 10K, 25K, rather than 150K, 250K, that's better. The, the second way we manage risk is that we, the, the second risk we face is that there's a big risk with um, um, working with companies that don't, that making something nobody wants, right? In tech, it happens a lot, right? You have this great idea, but no one really wants it. And you're not sure because tech is often thought of as something that's like, you know, magic. <laughs> so you, you end up making a big bet and then nothing happens. The way we manage that risk is that we tend to identify the companies we invest in by the things that we need. So, so, or, or people that we know need. So we have a very vibrant consulting practice that works with a lot of businesses. And through that process, we get a sense into the biggest problems these businesses have. It's like a big data collector for us. So as we solve these companies' problems, we identify opportunities where there is, no, there is a huge gap in the market. And by, me, by building or targeting companies that are solving those problems, we're able to, to kind of, would I say, solve the problem, right? Um, and, and that has helped us a lot because most of our companies within the first three months of our engagement with them get a customer and within the first six months able to make revenue, which helps us a lot. And then the third, the third risk is what I call the risk of non-alignment. So what I mean by that is you're working with somebody who is dishonest or, you know, not sincere or, you know, and to be honest, I don't have a good response to that risk because people change. I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned in, in business is like people change. You can't really count on anybody. Um, but what we try to do is to put in the right controls and measures to prevent that from happening or to enable a, a clean exit if that happens um, or transition, either from us or from them, depending on the arrangement. Or, um, or we... Or sometimes what we found very helpful to do is to provide a, um, um, to, to work with, with that entrepreneur to correct whatever the malaise is. Um, but one thing we do also is when we invest, we try to work with those who we have a long history and relationship with. Uh, people that trust us and people that we trust. 
and that really helps um, with, with um, solving a lot of these problems. But those are some of the risks. There are many more. Government regulation <laughs> is a very popular one. We're always dealing with government regulation and working with power brokers to ensure that they understand what we're doing and how it works. There are many other risks, but um, I would say those are, those are just a couple and there are always ways to solve, to solve these problems. Awesome. Um, and you touched a little bit on opportunities. Um, in this space, in this tech space, what opportunities do you see in this COVID era that we're in? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunities. And um, I mean, one big opportunity is that a lot of small businesses are, are looking to go digital by, you know, by compulsion, right? Because what we know from even all the countries that are even um, starting to roll back their lockdowns is that we're not going back to a new normal <laughs> anytime soon. Um, companies are, you know, I was reading South Africa's recovery plan and they have like four levels, level four, level three, level two, level one. And they have like all these processes they put in place and things like large events will never happen and church is done. And, you know, so you can already tell that there's some, there's not going to be a, a normal and things like markets and malls are probably not coming back. So businesses have to evolve. And I think one big opportunity is helping businesses evolve from what they used to be to something that's more distributed because it's digital. So e-commerce is a very obvious opportunity. Um, I think there's also another opportunity in, if I can say, um, making this transition because their needs are slightly different from those of individuals. Um, and, and they're more driven by an equi equity, um, equity um, um, prerogative. How do you ensure this gets to everybody? And I would argue alongside that, that alongside the equity prerogative is also a need for what I would say is, a, um, is, is for one to think about security, right? Um, one security, because the reality is that things are not, that safe and people are going to need safety and security during this time as they move around and do any kind of business. Um, there's obviously the obvious opportunity with healthcare. Um, there's obviously the obvious opportunity with digital payments. Um, so there, there are quite a number of opportunities that this has shown up and it's really about how do you support the businesses that are trying to adapt to this new normal. Um, if you're helpful in their transition, they stay loyal to you. If you're not, they forget you. <laughs> so that's really how it's going to go down. And back to the traditional family businesses we were talking about, you know, yeah. um, like from our parents' generation. At our, so that was first generation. And now moving to second generation, perhaps integrating yeah. the next generation, like ourselves into the business and all that. Um, they tend to be brick and mortar, right? Yeah. And thinking, for instance, about a physical school that right now is faced shutdowns. Um, yeah. What opportunities do you see for such a business to to survive or even thrive in this transition? World? Yeah. 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 No, no. I think you know what I would say is having worked with a number of companies like that. The the first step I've learned is just taking your time to deeply understand your customer 
because at the end of the day, you can digitally transform, but if you if your customer doesn't come with you, you just killed the business, <laughs> right? So taking the time to get on the phone with the customer, understand the customer, especially the biggest ones. Um, what are their needs in this time? Um, before you make sudden moves, <laughs> you know, that is my biggest advice, um, which is counterintuitive because I'm supposed to be the disruption guy, you know, take your business online, do this. No, no. But first of all, try and understand the customers. Why do they buy from you? What are they expecting from you? How can you help them? What other problems do they have? Then on the basis of that need analysis, you segment them, right? There are some that will be ready for digital. And in that case, for example, like a school, you can move them online because they have the facilities, they have this, this, they have internet at home, they have that. There are those that will not be ready just using your school analogy. And your job is to prepare them. Oh, look, this is how we need to do things. Okay, in the interim, why don't you do X, Y, and Z that still allows you to be safe and maintain social distancing, right? Um, we'll send you an email with a worksheet every day. You can do it. You know, here's where you can get a computer. We have a mass of them we've ordered. Maybe you can get some or pay something every term. You know what I mean? So it's really about figuring out how to problem solve. It's not about taking an existing system and just imposing it on your customers without context. Because what people fail to understand sometimes is that the business has been built based on perhaps an analog understanding of the customer. That's why it's successful. In moving it to digital, you can easily remove the success factors without knowing. The relationships, the way people like to do things, the specific nuances of the way people like their things done. And you have to be very careful in doing that. One thing I advocate is, at the very least, um, create two divisions in your business. The way I used to do it at my previous businesses when they had to transition is, look, there's change the business and there's run the business. Run the business is the business as it is today, right? So in the run the business, you have what you're doing today that's meeting needs. In the change the business, that's what your business needs to be. And then what you do is you start to implement things and run and change the business, implement things and change the business and gradually move people from run the business to change the business. But you can't do a sudden shut this down, open this, you know? Spire is still operating in the store. But what they've done is for people like me that are not leaving this house ever, <laughs> you know, they said, okay, you can order online, which is why my wife just went downstairs to get stuff from the store because I feel like I can better control our family's risk. We're all here in our house and, you know, we're not all going out, you know, things like that. So you, but it would be unfair for Spar to shut down their store and say, everybody must go online. I don't think that would work. They would kill their business. So you have to do this, this uh, gradual shift. Right, you've brought up quite a number of issues there. And I'd like to know, switching online 
requires a different business model, obviously. So what steps do you think that family businesses who do want to look at adjusting their models or adapting an online strategy should be looking at? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, At at the risk of um, selling myself, we support with that. And it's always going to be a case-by-case thing. I don't think you can put a one-size-fits-all. But the steps are usually the same. Um, the first thing you have to really do is what we call a design audit. So what is the job to be done that your family business does for people? You may realize that the job to be done is not what you thought the job to be done is. I'll give you a good example, right? Okay. So um, let's say, let's use a school example, right? I mean, the expectation is I, um, um, I, the job to be done is, you know, in an education. That could be your assumption, right? My kids are getting an education, and because they're getting an education, and that's the extent, and government is mandated anyway, right? What people don't realize is, Schools also serve other functions. So for example, schools are where parents dump their kids so they can go to work, <laughs> right? Schools are, <laughs> exactly, I know I have, you know, schools are, um, and, and so, you get my point, it, you know, I need a place to dump this kid. <laughs> that, so in thinking, we have we could be safe we could be make sure things are safe we could test each kid we could do this perhaps there's a way we can make this work with less kids you know um i'm just giving an example i'm not saying this is the model to follow i don't know the specifics of your business but you can always shift business models if you understand what parts need to go online and what parts stay offline if you get my point And then you can meld both models in a way that makes sense. Now, the other thing to think about in terms of business models is also understanding the costs you're leaving behind. So I'll give you an example with me. I run an investment business, right? My, My business is primarily in the business of investing in other businesses. My traditional limited partner base, so the people whose money I invest, is usually, you know, I don't have a lot of high net worths. Um, but I have a lot of institutionals um, who provide capital to, to me on their, to invest on their behalf, right? Now, right now, no institutional is, is doing that anymore. No corporate is doing that because they've got, you know, huge holes in their balance sheets that they have to fill up before worrying about whether they're going to invest in some startup. (laughs) You understand what I'm trying to say? So what do I do? I have to look for a new clientele. You get what I'm saying? Now, when I was working with institutionals, mostly DFIs and so on and so forth, what, you know, I had to worry about getting enough. I had to worry about, you know, having a certain level of staff. I had to worry about this and that. Now I've been preparing to move to a leaner model. So what I did was I, I 
I, I broke down my business and said, first of all, this is the work that we do to prepare for a deal. Is someone willing to pay me for that? Yes. There are many more people who are willing to invest because people need money to go somewhere. Corporates don't have the money, but a lot of individuals, middle-class people have money. So I took the work I would do for a corporate and published it online. Well, not fully, but I charge people um, $1,000 a year for access to a subscription and they can see my deal reports, right? And make an investment decision. And then they can still invest just like my former clients used to do, except I use a deal platform to do that now, right? So you can see what I mean. Um, that meld of the two then allows me to separate the work I do in terms of my deal advisory, which normally would be combined in a two and 20 model. And I can charge more people for this. I charge people $1,000. I have 200 people on my mailing list now. So that's $200,000 a year, which is good, right? Because I would have had to raise a, a, you know, a $10 million fund to make that much. So now at least I have my money. Um, and now it's, it's diverse from how many people can invest in my deals. You get my point. And that helps me. So even sometimes my big institutionals, they pay me $1,000 a month, right? And they want to do the deals themselves or do deals that are complementary to them. I don't begrudge them that. So I'm just saying this to say, this is how you have to think about business models. It's not a one size fits all. It's all about identifying what are the cost savings. I moved my office remote, so I took out that cost. Um, I changed my team to a percentage of the revenue that we get from the advisory business and put everybody on a floor. You get what I'm trying to say? So there are all these things you can tinker with in terms of costs and profits that can help. Okay. Um, and in this dispensation, businesses are now burdened with how to manage remote teams. But in the yeah. tech space, people such as you, have, you've been doing this for a while, right? You've been using such yeah. models in the past. So do you have any tips that you can share for these businesses that are managing remote teams for the first time, including yeah. what tools you may be using, which apps and all that? Yeah. I mean, we're using one of those tools here right now, right? That's uh, Zoom. So I use Zoom a lot. I use Slack a lot um, to document things and just chat. I use WhatsApp quite a bit as well for very small teams. Um, these, these things have been very useful for us. What I would say is that, you know, one of the things I see people make a mistake when doing, when they go remote for the first time, is they don't make uh, accommodation for the different um, levels of resources their staff have at home. You know, especially in a developing country, your office is a refuge. And many people don't know that, right? You have AC, you have, you know, <laughs> you know, you sometimes wonder why they have internet and all that. You know, when we wanted to remote back when, the first thing we did was we like made sure everybody had like we had a sense of, okay, what do you have in your house? You know, do you have the resources to do this, that? If you didn't have, we supported you with a loan to get one, which we took out of your salary. Um, or we made sure you lived in a place that had it, if you were at that level of seniority. 
um, that helped us quite a bit. So all the people on my team, they all live in Yaba. I can walk to their houses, <laughs> even though we're a remote team. Um, if I have to see them, I, you know, so I made sure that people stayed around me. I just didn't want to pay the office costs because I, my math is that at under 50 people, an office space doesn't really make sense. So I didn't want to pay the office costs. So I just kept them at home and I, and I basically made sure they were walking distance from me. And we would meet in bars or meet, you know, in people's homes or whatever, if we had to. That was before Corona. I wouldn't advise that. But it's always helpful to understand the level of infrastructure your staff have in their homes before you make that move. Now, and then have a plan for upgrading them. What we started to do was the savings from the office, we distributed to employees so they could set up their home offices. Right? So that way, everybody has, you know, my internet connection is fairly clear. I have two connections at home. I have an inverter system. I have power all the time in my estate. So things like that are very crucial. I think they will be more crucial as we scale. The other thing is also that it's very important to have some kind of daily touch points, just so people remember that they're in a company. <laughs> So in our case, we have a, a, a WhatsApp group and we have Slack. On Slack, we have stand-ups by department every day just to understand what has been done, what hasn't been done. Then the other thing I would say is project management becomes extremely crucial. Um, this isn't one of those things where you can wait for the person to come into the office before you tell them what to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? You have to make the time to invest in processes, um, make the time to invest in tracking systems that measure people's productivity. Um, and then you have to have clear communication lines and an indicator of progress on a weekly basis through a weekly team meeting. So there's a lot of rituals to put in place, but I say if you make that investment in breaking down your business into repeatable actions, you will benefit from it. Because even when you come back to work, if you choose to go back to the office, you'd have a clear idea of what everybody in your company does and why and when the thing isn't working and how to measure whether it's working or not and, and so on and so forth. Right. Um, the sermon on the mount right now is digitalize, digitalize, digitalize. Mm -hmm. um, and use more tech businesses but that's not without risk, as you may already know, being part mm -hmm. of um, the tech space. And cybersecurity is a growing concern. What can we do to protect ourselves, especially those businesses that are not in the tech space, but are engaging tech companies? That's, that's a good question. Um, but, but allow me to poke a little bit. What do you mean by protect yourself from fraud or from... Um, I mean, what, 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 what specific uh, when you're risk? looking at um, cybersecurity, you're looking at, um, as we're working yes. remotely, even we're meeting over apps like Zoom, you want to feel like yes. um, these meetings are confidential. They're not recorded. Yep. They're not being listened to. Um, you've yes. got big 
organizations that have got confidential information that they pass through cyberspace. They'll be sending emails. Yeah. They'll be sending um, documents because obviously we can't meet right now. How do we make sure that our cybersecurity is up to par and how do we make those companies we engage accountable? This is a very great question. Um, one thing I've been, I've been spending time um, with multiple businesses on, particularly small businesses and family businesses, is really understanding the importance of cybersecurity, particularly as, as this starts to happen. I've had, I've raised, I don't know if you follow me on social media, I've raised a lot of Um, I'll tell you what we've done, and then I don't know what you know. People, people. Um, I'll, I'll say a few examples of things to do. So now we we I come from a payment payment background. So my whole life I am uh, I've been aware of the dangers <laughs> as well as the opportunities of digitalizing. And um, the way we've worked out the dangers is so far is um, you know first of all. You know, um, we, we spend quite a bit of time making sure we work with only encrypted technology. We pay the extra amount, whatever it costs. So there's no using free tools in our organization. You know, that's one thing that really exposes a lot of people. You know, using free this, free that. In Nigeria, we say, awuf de ron bele. So <laughs> we make sure we pay. Hold up, know? what does that mean? So it means free things will make you porch, <laughs> right? So we're very, very careful to use just the original tools, original things. We don't zoom, even if, even if we're not up to 10, we'll buy the, the tier <laughs> where we know our cybersecurity is guaranteed. Because a lot of times it's because you're using the free version that it's unprotected, right? So that's number one. Number two, there's some very um, key things that we shared with our team. I'm going to share them here to share, just like office things, you know. So, for example, we don't we don't allow people to to um, share our Zoom links. We only put them in the invites. Um, we don't allow. We have a password, so I have to admit each person. This is just Zoom, but in every respect, we have all those things. We have MDM. So mobile device management activated on Google apps, which ensures that every phone or every device must be authorized to access. Um, so there's all these things. I've put a link in the chat and give you some sense of how to think through a process. So that's the number one thing. The other thing I, I try to do is really, um, when it comes to a lot of digital um, information or things like that, right? Regardless, I still call to confirm, you know, because BECs are real, right? Business email compromise is a real thing. So you never know who's looking at your emails and all that. So I call and confirm because hearing your voice on the other end of the line, it's harder. <laughs> you know, to, to compromise that, right? So I call and confirm, oh, did you tell me to do this? Okay, fine. 
before I go ahead, right? So putting in those processes can really, really help. Um, and I would say, you know, it doesn't take much. What we've done that has really changed the game for us because of our scale is that we invested in, a, in, a, in monitoring, in cyber monitoring services. And I'm happy to recommend companies that do a great job, Israeli companies especially, that do a fantastic job. We, 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 um, we invest in that um, for our teams, for our portfolio companies. So what they do is that they pretend to be fraudsters. And so they can pick up information about what fraudsters are saying about your business. You understand what I'm saying in the fraud circles and report that information to you. And that's because, you know, we have a lot of companies in our portfolio that are very big. So for us to protect our wealth, we have to ensure that they're not being cyber compromised in any way. Um, and we feed that information back to them. Of late, we've been seeing a lot about government. So we feed that information to the government and say, guys, you're being, you've been compromised. This person has been compromised. Because in the cyber world, it's, it's a very social world. So they actually share a lot of information. It's just about you finding the right expert who's deeply embedded in the community. That's the way you, you, you can make it uh, work. I don't know if that answers your question. Yes, most definitely does. It's helped quite a lot. I'll have to look at it more from a Zim perspective as well. But yeah, it's, it, it has helped quite a lot. And um, last question. Do you think this time, this slowdown, is a good time for companies to drive innovation? Or should they take a wait-and-see approach? Oh, no, no. I would never recommend for anybody at this time a wait-and-see approach. This is the time to test. Because, you know, you can test things now. Everything is shut down after all, you know. <laughs> Um, so you already have a constraint on your operations. Um, small, light, non-expensive tests are how I would approach things at this time. Um, you know, try and test new initiatives, new products, new things, and innovate, innovate things. So that, that would be my approach. Right. Um, I think we are all done with the questions. Just one more question uh, from one of the attendees. If they wanted to reach out to you, what, how would they be able to do it? Sure. Um, I just put there um, my, I'm going to put it in the chat, my email. Okay, cool. My email is e at future.africa. Um, just, it's the easiest way. If I don't respond on time, just reach out to Nike <laughs> and she can make sure we do an intro because then that one, I'll, you know, I'll pick it up quickly. Um, that, that's, the, that's the best way. I can also share my number um, as well. I'm, I'm easily reachable on WhatsApp. So by all means, you can always reach me and, and I'm always happy to be helpful. All right. Um, thank you so much, Ian, today for taking time out of your busy schedule and um, no sharing problem. with us no a little bit of your world and your experience now during the code of 
era and also giving us some tips on how we can get our businesses into the digital space comfortably. Absolutely. And I guess as a, as a parting um, word, you know, one thing I would say is diversify. Mm-hmm. If you can diversify, very important now. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sharing with some other seniors of mine the miraculous story of the Reliance founder, Mr. Mukesh Ambani. Mm-hmm. Um, just invested in a recession the refinery hello Ian I think I'm losing him there it was me hello yes Ian yeah, I think we've lost him there. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. Hello, okay. can you hear me? Yes, now we can hear you again. We had lost you there. Okay. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, um, so I was saying that, I don't know what you heard me say last, but I was very inspired by, I was very, I was very in, inspired by the, um, by the example of Mukesh Ampani. There's a family business. They decided to diversify into technology and they built a telecoms division, which was really like the world's first data-only um, network, delivering internet to thousands, millions of people at, um, at $4 per, per, per user, per, per, per person. $4 a month for unlimited internet. And, um, and basically, they invested... $5 billion in, and, you know, made the man started in traditional business, oil and gas. Uh, and now he's, um, he's the, this is one of the, you know, one of the, the, the biggest telecoms company in, in India, the biggest tech company in India um, um, as a result. So the example of that um, show us that it's always possible families to to look at the future what the future might require and make the right investments now in order to um, get to that point so that's that's a an inspiring story you should go read it read it up Mukesh Ambani um, of Reliance awesome we'll definitely do that um Nikkei? hello thank you very much Ian. that was really insightful thank you for your time and um yes continue to keep safe in these interesting times that we're in we will yeah we will all right bye now have a good evening thank you very much